I grew up here. I'm in a small town, rural town, about 100 miles from Dublin. Not a very remarkable town in, in what would be the bog, basically. It's bog land. It's flat. It's grey, grey skies and flat. And when I was growing up, I really wanted to leave here. Like, very, very desperately. It was a huge thing. I really wanted to get out. I wanted to get out. I found Ireland stultifying. I thought it was very conservative. It was very religious. It felt very, like, parochial and backward. I felt, you know, kind of very hemmed in. I kind of felt I couldn't express myself in the place I grew up. Welcome to Change My Mind, the podcast where we ask leaders what they've changed their mind on and why. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, Chief Exec of the Depolarisation Project. You just heard from our guest today, Peter Gagan, an investigative journalist and author, talking about how much he used to want to leave Ireland. Yet, that was where he talked to us from. He'll also be talking about his book, Democracy for Sale. But before we get to that, I'd like to invite you to sign up for our email newsletter at depolarizationproject.com. We promote this show with Open Democracy to their 8 million regular monthly visitors. You can find the back catalogue to our shows and more information on this episode at opendemocracy.net slash depolarizationproject. As always, I'm joined for today's episodes by my two wonderful co-hosts, communicator and business thinker, Laura Osborne. Hi, Ellie. And our behavioural insight expert, Alex Chesterfield. Hi, Laura. Hi, Ellie. So Peter's a renowned investigative journalist who's got a great nose for a story. And you can sense it as he starts talking about slowly peeling back the layers when he realised how dark money was entering the British political arena. What stood out for you from this, Alex? Well, Peter's talked about how much significant change Ireland has been through in the last 20 to 30 years, from a position where divorce was prohibited under the constitution until 1995, was it, to more recent shifts around abortion and gay marriage. So it's a dramatically changed country. And whilst there's no panacea, the role that deliberative democracy has played in fusing sides together is really worth thinking about. And what about you, Laura? What should listeners look out for? Well, they can look out for the unexpected mention of the condom superhighway between Belfast and Dublin. That took me by surprise, which still didn't seem to endear Peter to his hometown. Uh, But with my business hat on, it was interesting to dig into how businesses can and should legitimately engage in politics. Now, clearly some of the dark money examples Peter gave are quite absurd, but there is an important and distinct role for businesses and how they use their voice when policy decisions directly influence them and their workforce. And so with all of those things in mind, let's give Peter a call. So Peter, welcome to the show. Your book, Democracy for Sale, which comes out in a couple of weeks' time, it talks about the rise of dark money on both sides of the Atlantic and the influence that it's had on politics. I wondered if you could just explain a bit more about how you think that's manifested and what it's doing to our democracy. So what I kind of came to write this book. I, kind of, I thought, well, I'm going to have to define my terms here to start with. So I might define some of these terms for the audience too. So when you talk about dark money, what we really mean is kind of unaccountable political contributions. So money that goes into politics 
from anonymous sources, from sources that don't know where it comes from. Some of the most ex- obvious examples of that have been the United States. And, and the term dark money is kind of synonymous with Jane Meyer, who's a really great journalist in New Yorker. And she wrote a lot about the Koch brothers and their influence in American politics. And they spent hundreds of millions, billions of dollars on uh, campaigns in America that kind of suited their interests. They were big into oil. That's kind of where the idea of dark money comes from. But actually, we see a lot happening in Britain, too, because our political regulation system is so poor, it's quite easy actually to spend on accountable money in Britain, whether that's by kind of evading electoral laws, whether whether it's by kind of spending money below the threshold, funding anonymous groups on Twitter, or uh, just uh, funneling money to things like groups like think tanks. So I'm kind of like taking it in the broadest uh, kind of idea of like, well, what does it mean when money from unaccountable sources come into our politics and how does it, how does it affect it? And what we saw in the United States over the last 40 years, this real rise of kind of libertarian uh, libertarianism on the right of American politics. And it's been the defining feature really of a lot of American politics for 40 years. This is how something like climate change went from being you know, basically an accepted tenet of of politics to something that America is now contested. Uh, you ended up with this kind of situation where you've got, you know, huge tax cuts being a kind of uh, modus operandi of, of the Republican Party in the States. And in some ways, it kind of did provide the breeding ground for what came with Donald Trump. In Britain, it's quite interesting because what you've seen is you've got a history in Britain of private money funding politics. Unlike in America, where it costs you know, huge sums of money to run for electoral office, even in down ticket uh, races, it costs eye-watering amounts of money. Somebody I interviewed for my book, former cabinet minister, um, Gutho Bebb, a former conservative cabinet minister who left over Brexit, he said to me, you know, access in Britain is really cheap. And that's the one thing that is really striking about it. And when I first started looking at this, I thought that that was something that made you think, made Britain less susceptible to money. It meant that money would have less influence in Britain because there was less of it about but actually, in many regards, I think it makes Britain even more susceptible uh, to money and to donations because political parties rely on donations to survive. So there's more opportunities to kind of buy influence through money. And the other thing that's really important when you think about the role of money in politics and unaccountable money is online. Um, quite a lot of my book, my book is really b- broken up into three sections. One is about the role of money in politics. Uh, one is about lobbying and the other is about online disinformation. And all of our electoral laws and rules in Britain are from an analogue age. They're about 20 years old and they were quite cutting edge at the time, but now they're totally dated. We've actually got no laws really at all about online politics. I'm kind of trying to chart how that has arisen in Britain and the effects it's had. And I think it's had you know, a really profound effect in our politics. I think it's changed our politics in, in quite substantial ways, not just the content of our politics, but also how we do politics. And I think anyone who's been in Britain for the last five years can see that our politics has shifted massively. And I think one of the reasons, one of the parts of why that's happened has been the rise of what we'd see as clandestine political campaigning and almost political campaigning becoming a constant feature of politics which is a very American way of politics. You know, in America, for a long time, it's been a constant campaign. There's some great research out here in the States showing that people feel more unified, for example, around Independence Day than they will at election time. And if you're continually campaigning, you increase those divides. How much, or if at all, do you think this dark money is likely to have contributed to what is a growing polarisation both in the UK and in the US? To kind of segue briefly into how I came to this subject, you know, I didn't expect, um, as you can probably tell from my voice, I'm, I'm an Irish journalist. I've lived in Britain for about 15 years. I didn't expect to spend the guts of four years researching and writing about dark money in politics and ended up writing a book about it. 
This all started actually back just a few days before the Brexit referendum, if you remember that. And I was in the town of Sunderland in the northeast of England. I was working for the Irish Times and I was basically just there. Could you describe Sunderland for our American listeners? Yes, Sunderland is a former industrial town of about 80,000 people that kind of hugs the North Sea in the northeast of England, which was a big industrial heartland. You know, if, if your American listeners have ever been to Ohio, somewhere like Youngstown, Ohio feels a lot like somewhere like Sunderland. You know, a town that had once was reasonably prosperous, had very large heavy industry, large mines, large shipbuilding. All of those things are gone now and the town has struggled to find a new identity in the world now. And so I was in Sunderland kind of writing a report for the paper ahead of the Brexit referendum. And I was leaving the city. I was on the, the metro, the suburban rail line. And I noticed a free newspaper that's kind of available across uh, across England. And the front of the newspaper was this big, huge advert that said, vote, leave, take back control. And that was the slogan, the slogan of, of the, the main leave campaign. But I noticed, I picked it up, and on the back of it, there was the logo of a political party called the Democratic Unionist Party. And this is a small, well, it's a, a Northern Irish political party, the biggest party in Northern Ireland, which has no footprint outside of Northern Ireland. And I was hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Northern Ireland. So I became, in, I was interested by this. And I'd worked as a reporter in Belfast earlier in my career. And I knew that Northern Ireland had donor secrecy laws, which meant that you didn't have to declare who gave money into politics in Northern Ireland. And so I kind of was interested in this. I was wondering who would pay for this huge advert. And I thought maybe someone's trying to use the Democratic Unionist Party to spend money in this referendum. And then I promptly got on, on the Metro and kind of forgot about it. I got to filing my report for next day's paper, which was all about how I, how everybody in Sunderland seemed to want to vote for Brexit. And 48 hours later, Sunderland was the first place in Britain to declare in the Brexit referendum. And famously, it was 62-38 for leave, which was a huge, huge result. And it kind of set the tone for a very big night in British politics for the, for the Brexit referendum. And then afterwards, I found myself returning to that issue, returning to that question of, of that advert. We ended up doing a big story about this, which was the first big story about this kind of dark money in politics. And we found out that the Democratic Unionist Party had spent almost half a million pounds, which is a huge amount of money in British politics. And they'd used this loophole in Northern Ireland. Um, and the reason I'm, I'm giving this big backstory is that I think it's really interesting to think about you know, in terms of campaigning, in terms of it, that was a very close election as well. So this was money that, you know, really would never have been able to be spent if it wasn't for using this loophole. There's no suggestion that money came from Northern Ireland. And I think it was really interesting during the Brexit referendum in general to see the amount of how these campaigns used, pushed the boundaries to spend money. It happened on, on both sides of, of the political aisle. It's just, I think the, the leave, the, the leave campaign was much more effective at doing this. It was much kind of a more insurgents, it had more of an insurgency spirit kind of behind it. But what was interesting was because it was a referendum, um, a lot of, whereas traditionally political parties might have been a bit resistant to pushing the boundaries because they might get caught and get in trouble afterwards. Because it was a referendum, it kind of allowed all these campaigns disappeared the next day. So there was there didn't seem to be the same feeling that this might be something we'd have to stand over. And in many ways, what happens happened then became, I think, the kind of way British politics has worked for the last four years. So I think in terms of like, it's not, I don't think about it in terms of like shifting someone's vote or shifting someone's, one person's opinion or another person's opinion. I think it's about, it's less about the kind of content of the politics and more about the way politics is done. And I think what we've seen, you know, is a, a real shift in, in that in the last few years. What's interesting as well is, in my book, I talk a lot about the world of corporate think tanks in in Britain, which is very much an American world. You know, this idea that you have 
liber- mainly libertarian think tanks who don't declare where their funding comes from, who are on the television all the time, on the, in the newspapers all the time, producing endless, often quite thin policy documents that are held up by you know, conservative politicians as the way forward. And what was very interesting in, in Britain, and I do think in Britain in the years after the Brexit vote, a small number of well-funded, corporately funded think tanks really did change the political discussion. And my book does go into this quite a bit because what you had in, in Britain with the Brexit referendum was, you know, was it do you want to stay in the European Union or do you want to leave? If you voted to leave, there wasn't much prospectus there. There wasn't much filled in. It was quite a, a bit of a tabula rasa and it was one of the advantages of the leave campaign was that this was kind of, you could make of it what you wanted. You said a moment ago uh, that the book is essentially in three parts and there's a thread of ideas that runs through them all. I wanted to ask quickly about the tech companies element of that and how that's increasing uh, polarisation and also the information seen by the electorate. And I wondered if there's a time when you've been taken in by dis or misinformation that you've seen online. And what was it? And how did you find out it wasn't true? I've definitely been taken in by that BBC breaking news account on Twitter. Definitely. Uh, the Kim Jong Kim Jong uh, um, Kim Jong uh, on being dead. Uh, I'm pretty sure I tweeted that at one stage off something at BBC Breaking News, and he's looking pretty well these days, uh, smoking and cavorting, <laughs> cavorting around Pyongyang. Yeah. So, yes, I think it's very easy. I actually sometimes think I remember Channel Four News about maybe about two years ago did this kind of segment where they went around the pub asking people things and like, and people saying they believe stuff. And that turned out not to be true. And then Channel 4 News was like, see, fake news is everywhere. And I was like, no, I don't think that's how that works. I don't think it's about like, we will all take in incorrect information at times. And I think the problem is less that someone believes something that turns out to be false. It's about not interrogating the source of the information that you are seeing. And in those instances, I wasn't interrogating the source of the information I was seeing. I was seeing the little BBC logo, but I was I was using a very heuristic shortcut. So, and I, I was tweeting it out. And I think also we, we are all to some extent, or at least I find myself to some extent, um, I like kind of tending towards believing things that reaffirm your own biases and not believing things that don't reaffirm your own biases. And I was just thinking about this today. For example, I'm currently in Ireland speaking to you and we've had a long, a big issue in Ireland at the moment to do a funeral of a former IRA man, a very prominent IRA man in Belfast, the Irish Republican Army, um, who died a couple of days ago. And at the funeral, there was very little social distancing and the leaders of Sinn Féin were all there, all next to each other. And this has become a huge thing in Ireland um, for people who are against, who are pro-Sinn Féin or anti-Sinn Féin. It's a bit like we had something very similar in Britain with Dominic Cummings. And it's basically Ireland's version of Dominic Cummings. And I was thinking... It's so interesting because I'm seeing people who were really castigating Dominic Cummings for breaking the lockdown rules by going to Durham now saying that it's totally fine to have broken the lockdown rules for the funeral of an IRA man. And just to place like devil's advocate here, I mean, I share your view that it's fundamentally changed politics, but in terms of the way that we have divided into tribes and what it's doing for our democracy and our discourse, how responsible do you think the tech companies are? I think it's I I think it's very like I am wary of the idea that like tech alone has you know is responsible for the entire systemic problems we have right now. You know I think the financial crash was a, has played a huge role in the politics that we've seen emerge post financial crash, and in some ways tech was there 
as part of that. It doesn't, you know, and uh, causation or correlation does not mean causation. But I think at the same time as well, though, I think a lot of the tech companies have shown a very, very ambivalent relationship uh, to their, I think, to their own kind of power. And I think it's understandable, given where they come from, the kind of Silicon Valley, Californian ideology view of the world that looks and sees like, you know, we're, we're but arbitrators. I thought it was very interesting. So, for example, if you look back last last October, about 250 members of staff at Facebook wrote an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg in which they kind of said um, they talked about misinformation and how it affected us all. And they, you know, they said our current policies on fact checking in a political office are a threat to what Facebook stands for. And they said that Facebook was allowing politicians to weaponize our platform by targeting people who believe that content posted by political figures is trustworthy. And I think there's some truth to that. I do think people see fig, you know, content that a political figure posts and, and think it's trustworthy. And I think the problem is the response from Facebook. In, in response to that, Nick Clegg, uh, the same Nick Clegg who used to be the Deputy Prime Minister, remarkably, uh, who now works for Facebook, said, you know, we don't, we, we, we compared Facebook to uh, tennis umpires. You know, and how you play the game is up to you. And I think there has been a very ambivalent relationship towards democracy from the tech companies, which in many ways reflects, I think, where they come from, which is a very American view of the world and a very American view of democracy. Like America has allowed big money to have a big role in its democracy for a long time. And this and that happens across the board. It happens across the piece. A lot of other countries are not like that, especially European countries. Britain is closer, but European countries are very, very different. They've got very tight rules on financial camp by um, political financing. And I think that's a huge part of it from a, just from a purely the business of politics side of it. I think it's the you know the way in which the American model, the Silicon Valley model, has then because of the size of these companies, these are behemoths. You know, Facebook is more powerful than almost every nation state on earth. And they have huge sway. They, you know, I'm speaking to you from Ireland where Facebook has uh, its corporate headquarters. We know from information that's been released under Freedom of Information here in Ireland that Facebook have very successfully lobbied the government at, at various times. And that's not surprising. Look at the size of Facebook's GDP versus the size of Ireland's. You know, these are huge companies who are well able to take advantage of, of their, their role in the marketplace. In terms of polarization, I think, I think it's hard. Like, I think on one on the one hand, in some ways, it's the pendulum effect of it too. You know, if you look back, I was as a journalist, I was you know lucky in some ways to be to be able to cover some of the Arab Spring in in Egypt back in twenty eleven, and at that stage we were talking about tech revolutionizing democracy in a good way. You know, we all remember those articles that Twitter. You know, basically it was the, the Twitter revolution. And the role of technology to connect people in ways that, you know, 100 years before, you know, people would have kind of clambered across railroad, you know, onto, onto the back of uh, railway carts to go across the country to make these connections. They can now make them instantaneously. And 10 years later, we're talking about how tech is, is, is tech destroying democracy. I think probably tech, tech certainly has allowed the herd tendencies to become more pronounced. Tech companies have been very slow to realise or have intentionally not wanted to realise the role in which the architecture of tech has played in polarisation. And that's before you even think about how tech can be used by kind of malicious actors, malicious political actors to kind of consciously push disinformation. But I do think, and I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm sure I say it in the book somewhere, what we're seeing now, I think, is actually you know, the whole kind of scare about things like Cambridge Analytica, really now, I think a lot more of the concerns I would have about tech or, or about its role in democracy are less to do with 
um, outside actors or states, it's actually individuals. And it's often not, you know, it's often actually, you know, just average individuals sharing lots and lots of false conscious uh, content and going down the rabbit hole. QAnon is a great example of that too. I won't rehearse the, the conspiracy theory for your audience because we'd be here all night and it'd still be kind of confused because I'm not that great at because it is a bit of a mind bender. It's all right. We'll put something in the show notes. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> they can put a link. The Atlantic has been very good on it. The Atlantic did a very good article on it quite recently by um, Adrienne LaFrance. But, you know, that couldn't exist without uh, without the internet. And I think and that's that's having real world effects now. We're seeing that COVID, I think, is exposing that too. So, uh, you know, whereas maybe it is true that people can be very polarised and, you know, like I've seen that. We saw that in Ireland. You know, we've, I'm from a you know a country that had civil war politics for 100 years. You know, you had a lot of polarisation. And in some ways that's, that's really changed now. And maybe tech has helped to end some of that polarisation. But by the same token, I think it's also driven a lot of polarisation. And thinking about outside of the tech world for a second and the role of sort of the wider business uh, community, you know, not not so much on the think tank end, but more generally. I wanted to get your take on how you think businesses can and should effectively engage with politics. I think it's, an in, you know, I think there's an interesting question to be asked about the role of, of business when it comes to kind of well, politics in, in the broader sense like if you look at what's happening now say with facebook and the, bo- the all the boycott of the boycott of facebook around hate speech you know unilever lots of other big names have pulled out there's about 900 brands who've pulled out of facebook and what i think is really interesting i think that's an interesting example of where business can can pull and prod and can actually force change in ways that civil society activism would really struggle to I still, I think there also needs to be a question about what happens when business are engaging with politics purely for their own ends. So, for example, I do a lot of stuff on party funding. I write a lot in my day job as an invest, as investigations editor at Open Democracy UK about party funding in Britain. Um, and I recently have been publishing stories a lot about the Conservative Party funding and, and their kind of reliance on funding from property developers. And I know there's a lot of companies and businesses, large and small, giving money to the Conservative Party, you know, stretching from hundreds of thousands of pounds to a couple of thousand pounds. And there's a fair question to be asked, I think, in that context about what business gets from that kind of relationship. You know, what what is well, what does a business get from from political donations? Why do, what does a business get from funding, you know, a think tank? What is the, you know, what is the kind of what's the what's the outworking of this for a business? And I think it's interesting, you know, if you look at we're starting to see, I think, some pushback against Businesses' involvement in politics from uh, from the public and from their users, you know. I think, and I think, on there's a kind of there's a need for businesses who are lobbying government. I think there needs to be a lot more, like a hell of a lot more transparency around it. And also, there's a revolving door between business and politics. I think that's very damaging. Almost everyone goes out, seems to go out to politics now and go into business. And vice versa. We see secondments from business into government. So I think what we need is far tighter regulation around that, a hell of a lot more transparency. And I think, you know, from businesses, if they're going to engage in politics, I think it is incumbent on them to, to kind of be able to answer what, what's what's my incentive on this? Is it is it a social responsibility thing? Is it to try and push a social policy that works across society? Or is it for a narrow sectional interest? And unfortunately, what we've seen is that narrow section interest can get representation in government. We see it in Britain, we see it in America, we see it everywhere. 
And I think that's that's a huge problem. And it, it feeds mistrust in politics, understandably so. It feeds my own mistrust in politics. It's interesting, actually, that what you just said about the the kind of exchange of personnel as well. I was reading something over the weekend about in France where you can't donate directly to parties, but where they are studying that kind of crossover of the issues and where, as you, where the ideas come from, uh, when what you're effectively doing is swapping people between the two, even though no money is changing hands. Uh, but before we get on to our main question, which which we will ask you. Um, I wanted to just ask for your take on the role of business in responding to more social issues. Obviously, that's a huge area of debate at the moment, you know, whether it is predominantly virtue signaling or whether actually some good change is being prompted by the sort of corporate action you touched on it a bit with Unilever there on Facebook. But I wonder if you've got any other thoughts on the way that that's taking shape and where that might lead. Clearly, business seems to be responding to what it perceives as a, as a kind of cultural shift. And there's a lot of kind of, you know, we're seeing lots of brands put out statements, you know, whether it's Yorkshire tea, uh, telling people not to drink its tea, or it's Unilever deciding to boycott Facebook. There's a sense in which I think business is scrambling to figure out what, you know, what what's its role in all of this. But I think beyond, but I, I think there's like, that in some ways, again, feels quite surface. I think there's a much deeper question to kind of ask about, well, what's, you know, What's the role, like, I think what you're seeing is businesses are concerned about, they're concerned both about their own brand, they're concerned about brand management, and they're concerned about getting caught up in kind of what would be seen as kind of scandals, you know, and I think that all feels like there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of tumult around that, there's a lot of kind of like agitation, and I think that's what's happening in boardrooms, and they're kind of wondering, but we're still also seeing a lot of window dressing as well still. And I think that's probably a huge, that would be something I would be concerned about. You know, I, I see Palantir, Peter Thiel's uh, kind of, uh, kind of slightly Dr. Evilly tech company um, is going to go for an IPO initial public offering soon. And, it, you know, brought it, it brought its first woman onto the board. There seems to be quite a few boards that have very, very tokenistic levels of, of female representation. It's digital diversity. So there's a kind of, I think there's a tokenistic aspect with a lot of what we're seeing around business and what businesses are doing. And I think the the big question is what are the long term things? Like I would be very surprised if these businesses don't go back to Facebook, for example, in terms of advertising. You know, Facebook's the biggest game in town. Well, and not only I think not- what they're trying to do is leverage yeah, I was going to say, not only that, it's not even actually had much of an effect on Facebook's market cap. I mean, I just did a check, but it's, you know, the value of Facebook is higher than it has ever been. So it's had no impact at all. No, and it tends to do that. The Cambridge Analytica scandal was not dissimilar. It, it, knocked, it knocked money off Facebook and then the money came back because, because Facebook is such a monopoly player. Um, and that's a huge, huge aspect of it. And the market actually believes that you know, it, it'd be interesting to see, slightly digression, who the vice president nomination is for the, the Democratic Party. And I think that will be the, the market might react to that far more than it'll react to 900 companies pulling ads from Facebook. To yeah. be honest. Well, and that's what tech is worried about is, is regulation. And on that cheery note, um, I wonder if I can take you to the question that we ask everybody who comes on, Peter, which is what they've changed their mind on and a substantive issue where that's been the case. And you told us that you changed your mind on your home, Ireland. And I wonder what was that shift and why? Well, it's interesting. So I'm currently talking to you from my childhood. God, can you tell us what's the, um, what's the duvet on the bed? Is, is it changed since you were 13? It's not Care Bears, there's, is it? There's, it is, it's not a million miles away from it. There's like little... There's oh, little, come on, you can't give us a tease. What is it? I, I'm actually looking at this. There's, there's lots of stickers. There's football stickers from about 1993 
stuck all around the bed. The duvet, the duvet has changed. The bed itself is same. I never, I never slept in a double bed until I was about twenty-five, I think. So it's one of those little crucifix beds that somehow uh, you're supposed to fit in. The walls. What's are a the crucifix same bed? You can only lie. You can only kind of lie, like, 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 like Jesus on the cross. You can't, you know, <laughs> straight. I've never heard that before. <laughs> have to, it's a Catholic thing. <laughs> it's, yeah. So. <laughs> you're in your childhood bedroom with your stickers from 1993 and you've changed your mind on Ireland why? I grew up here I'm in a small town rural town about 100 miles from Dublin not a very remarkable town in, in what would be the bog basically it's bog land it's flat it's grey grey skies and flat and when I was growing up I really wanted to leave here like very very desperately it was a huge thing I really wanted to get out I wanted to get out I found Ireland stultifying I thought it was very conservative it was very religious it, well, you know, this was a kind of mid to mid nineties. I it felt very like parochial and backward. I felt you know kind of very hemmed in. I kind of felt I couldn't express myself in the place I grew up. That led me. I went to college in Ireland, but then I left. I moved to New York when I was twenty two, and I ended up living in the UK. Um, and I kind of really felt that it was what I needed to do. I really needed to get out of what was you know there was. My parents divorced, my parents separated when in 1999. Um, at that stage, divorce had only come into Ireland in 1995. We had a divorce referendum, which was very tight. It was only about 30 or 40,000 votes, if memory serves, in it. It was, you know, 50.01 to 49.99. You know, and the country narrowly voted for divorce. And in, even then, on very strict terms, you had to be separated for something like three of the previous four years or four of the previous five years. So this was a country, you know, contraception was banned when I was growing up. You know, there was a famously, the train from Dublin used to bring guns up to Belfast and condoms uh, back down from Belfast to Dublin during the Troubles. And so yeah, this, was, this was the kind of context in which I grew up. And it's been, I've now been back in Ireland for four months. I came back initially for a week from London to kind of help my mum kind of get ready for what I could kind of see coming the kind of pandemic in, in early March and I've ended up staying and it's been really refreshing um to be in such in many ways a very very changed country you know there's the headline stuff about we had the gay marriage referendum and uh, we had the abortion referendum both of which were passed you know we had this incredibly incredibly strict abortion regime where the fetus had the same uh life had the same um had the same status legally as as the mother, which is incredible, which actually had been brought in at the behest of American religious uh, conservatives who came to Ireland and kind of pushed for it in the late seventies, um, and so we went, we've gone from that to having a very, very different uh, view of the world. You know, I'm really struck by you know why I went to school. I don't, I'm not sure if anybody I went to school would ever came out as gay, whereas I, you know, if, nowadays that's not an issue really in Ireland at all. It's, it's not. It's just something that's it's become very much part of life. And it's not just that as well. I find Ireland a very, it's Ireland's place is a kind of small outward looking country. That's where Ireland, that's kind of how Ireland is, has positioned itself now. It's really interesting, actually. It feels a far more open society in many ways to the, to, to the countries I went to live in, in Amer to America and, and Britain. You know, London and New York are different types of cities, but there is, as a general kind of societal dispensation and kind of, view of the world you know it's, it's one to cleave towards multilateralism um, towards alliance building I think towards kind of surprisingly as well it far less given to kind of um, 
huge political temper. It's been really interesting for four months being in Ireland. We haven't had a government for four months. The government was only, we had an election in February, in late February, and then a long coalition building process that took four years, which ended, uh, four months, uh, felt like four years, because it was during the, during the lockdown. It ended up with, uh, in terms of polarisation, the two parties of the Irish Civil War, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, the opposing sides of the Civil War, doing a coalition deal with each other for the first time ever. Uh, and now we have a government. And what I found really interesting in that period was, you know, if I was in Ireland, if I was in Britain, Sky News have had a ticker tape below the bottom of the screen telling you how many days it had been since there had been a government. You imagine four months in Britain without a government. Been elected. Well, I remember when it was five and days in the pressure. Indeed, <laughs> yes. And it was a kind of... Com- kind it's a lived experience for this. you, Ellie. <laughs> yeah, very lived experience. Um, but and, um, uh, Peter, as you're talking about this, just to inter- like how much, you know, you, you talked about civil war and the troubles. Uh, how much has the resolution, I know it's not completely resolved by any stretch, how much has that reduction in tension, do you think, affected you? Did, did it affect you very much when you were growing up? I think, yes, it would not, to, to an extent, I'm not very far from the, I'm in the Republic of Ireland, about 30 miles from the border where I am now. And so we would have been kind of on the edge. We're not a border county, but we're quite close to the border and so you would have grown up with that you know that was part of our politics it's interesting i was watching a program on rt on a national broadcaster earlier today and they kind of were showing highlights from 1981 which is the year of the hunger strikes and charlie hawhey who was the prime minister of the taoiseach of ireland for many years the leader of fianna fall the biggest party in ireland until the economic crash was saying you know that he was talking about northern ireland and he was talking about how basically we we had to have irish unity and in the election of 1981 the two big issues were the economy which was in the doldrums and northern ireland nowadays you would never get you know somebody in in a senior political role in Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael saying that unification had to happen Sinn Féin would say that we just had a program for government that really we actually struggled to find a language to talk about the island the island of ireland and northern ireland they kept on talking about things anyways these this shared island was the language they used um, Northern Ireland isn't part of our political conversation anymore. And I think that's definitely helped to detoxify Irish politics. I think it's definitely helped to change uh, to change the relationships within Ireland. It's had, in some ways, I think a negative effect too. Like, not the, the end of violence is very, very positive. But I think it's allowed people in the Republic of Ireland to see Northern Ireland as somehow completely detached from them. And to, you know, I think it's meant that people in, in the Republic of Ireland have really not been very good at trying to understand Northern Ireland's ongoing problems. You know, Northern Ireland is still a very, very, is a post-conflict society with huge problems. And there's a tendency for us to kind of just go, why can't Northern Ireland just be normal uh, without realising what the trauma of, of Northern Ireland's history does to it. But there's a lot more understanding, you know, like I think, so for example, there's a, I think it's allowed Ireland to be much more grown up and mature. So I'm currently watching on Irish television a programme about it's 100 years since the Irish War of Independence. So Warty has commissioned a programme on 100 years since the War of Independence. And the man who's presenting this is Michael Portillo, the former Conservative uh, minister. <laughs> and yeah, you, it, and is he in red trousers? He's. I was just going to say, what's he wearing he's, he's, in all he's the quite, trains? <laughs> he's quite flamboyantly dressed, it has to be said. And it's it's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. And I think that's the kind of move that they could never, or, or the Irish broadcaster could never have made 20 years ago. You know, and in the same vein, because I've been in Ireland, I've been watching a lot of Irish television, and there was a famous football match, a soccer match about 25 years ago between Ireland and England. 
It was a friendly. I happened to have been there. I was about 12 or 13. My father brought me. And it was abandoned when Combat 18, the neo-Nazis, basically ripped up the stadium and started chucking it down. It was a terrible moment in Irish football. And it, actually, I remember it very vividly. And it kind of scarred me. I, not scarred me, but it really was a horrible moment. I remember feeling very like kind of anxious when I was there. Um, but they showed the the pre-match advertisements from the television in Ireland. And the pre-match t- advertisement was a running, like, a series of battles, like Battle of Ockram, Battle of the Boyne, Battle of, you know, like 1916, and now 1995 Ireland versus England. You know, and it just jarred so much because that would never happen now. Um, I think our understanding of our own history, I think there's a much, there's a uh, Ireland has, uh, oddly at the same time as it feels like Britain has actually struggled with ambivalence in its own history and retreated into very, very set narratives about the past. Ireland, I think, has opened up its history in much more interesting ways. And I think that is a product of of the peace process in Ireland. It's also a product of economic, um, of, of the economic like improvement. We ask everyone who comes on a second slightly cheeky question, which is who would they like to hear from about a time they changed their mind on an issue? The character I'd like to know most about actually is, is Slobodan Milosevic, the former uh, Yugoslav leader. I spent a lot of time working in the Balkans uh, earlier in my career, uh, particularly in Bosnia, um, and I found it a really fascinating part, place. I, I used to work in Northern Ireland, and I found it in many ways, there was aspects of, of life and post-conflict trauma in society that you could read across from one to the other. And the thing that I found really most interesting uh, about about Sabin Amasic I want to know about was his conversion to nationalism. So if you in the in the in the mid-80s, Slobodan Amalosovic was a communist apparatchik in in the kind of Yugoslav regime. He was a functionary, a factotum, but very, very, very smart and very able and uh, very driven. And what Slobodan Amalosovic realized partly actually through the power of television, through the power of the big television channels in Belgrade, was the power that hadn't been tapped of Serb nationalism. This increasing anger uh, amongst Serbs about their position in Yugoslavia. And there's an incredible piece of footage from a great documentary that's on YouTube uh, called The Death of Yugoslavia. And it's Slobodan Milosevic going to Kosovo in, I think, 1987. And at this stage, Kosovo was a province. Uh, it was an autonomous province under the Yugoslav system. It was Serb, it was Serb dominated in terms of the way it's run, but it was majority Albanian, a heavily Albanian majority. And Milosevic goes down there because local Serbs are saying they're being done, they're being kind of, uh, they're being attacked and they're being kind of uh, undermined by the by the Albanians. When in many ways, it's really the opposite. The Albanians are kind of real second class citizens in, in, in Kosovo at the time. And Milosevic goes down there and there's a footage of him meeting kind of so local Serbs. And he's kind of listening to their demands. and he, he looks like he's quite scared. He's not sure what he's going to do. He's not sure why he's there. And it gets broadcast on the television, and he speaks to the he's he speaks to the local television the television um, chief in Belgrade afterwards, and he says he's going to have a he's going to have a, a meeting the next day, and the television chief says, "No, this is your opportunity. You have to really seize this." And the next day, there's cameras are there again, and Milosevic is a man transformed. He's a rabble rouser now. He's saying, "You know, I will never let the Serbs here be be done down. You know, I will protect you." And he's realised you can see in his eyes he's realised the power. Of, of this nationalism. And he, incredibly, he really, you know, he was a master media manipulator. The story of the Balkan Wars was a story of media manipulation. It wasn't a story of ancient hatreds and all the kind of, in the same way Northern Ireland wasn't either, these kind of, kind of very trite ways of looking at it. Actually, what you saw was, you know, in a very analogue age, incredible media manipulation 
the use of television to spread lies, falsehoods, and, and, and hatred. And Milosevic did that incredibly successfully. And he would have sold another message if it had worked. You know, if it had it been in another system, he would have sold something different. Had the direction of travel been, you know, Western liberalization, he would have gone there. But I would love to kind of have a conversation with Slobodan Milosevic and to understand his thinking when he changed his mind or when he decided actually, you know, this whole communist system, I'm sod that, you know, it was it was rotting and it was rotten. But he realized and was kind of willing to take to go down a kind of the nationalist route and to polarize the population, which is what he did. And he did it with the help of others incredibly successfully. You know, he took a fragile policy that was already kind of fraying and broken and had underlying issues and incredibly successfully polarized it. And I think we can see, you know, I covered a Trump 2016 campaign. I, I will. I covered that election. I drove across um, about 10 states in America in the run-up to the, in, to the vote. And I spoke to a lot of support, a lot of just voters. I wasn't following any campaigns. I was just talking to voters. Um, and I find it's a really interesting way of kind of getting a handle on just kind of what's happening in the world. And I was really struck, again, how kind of this simple, simple messaging and, and the power of television, the power of, of mass media, whether it's the internet or, or television, to kind of change the political conversation in ways that you um, wouldn't have predicted and to polarise people and to radicalise them. And it, was hard, it wasn't hard to feel that people were radicalised. And I think we're almost a bit shy about talking about how our politics has been radicalised. Um, and often it's happened intentionally. And it's very hard to unradicalize it once it's happened. Thank you for that. We'll put in the show notes, actually, a few studies that we've come across about preference falsification and how people rapidly change their views as other people do and think one thing mm. in public and another thing in private, particularly aligned to the former Yugoslavia and lessons that we can learn. So like I was, when I was researching, I was astonished to find that in Belgrade, 90% of young people refused to be conscripted. That's not the image mm. I would have picked up from watching the media itself and like the degree of non-compliance because of how quickly Milos of it shifted things and he didn't bring them with him but he brought enough people to do ethnic cleansing and ravage an entire region for many many years but yes thank you that was a great and non and unexpected answer peter thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure to have you with us thank you very much for having me i've really enjoyed it Before we discuss, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Hello, I'm Mary Fitzgerald, Editor-in-Chief at Open Democracy. We exist to bring you the latest reporting and analysis on social and political issues around the world. We're here to educate citizens, challenge power and encourage democratic debate, just as this podcast does. To find out more about us or to make a contribution to our work, visit opendemocracy.net. So now we've heard the full interview, was there anything that you wanted to reflect on? Honestly, it was so refreshing to hear a tale of hope and optimism about change and bringing different sides together. The Irish government now being formed of two parties who previously opposed each other. And as someone who grew up seeing the troubles on the news really constantly as a kid, it's a good reminder that change and resolution can come, at least in part, and that you sometimes have to wait quite a long time for it. Yes, similar to me. I think what was really poignant is the distance that so many people have emotionally and politically travelled. I'm speaking to you now from my hometown in Guildford, 
which in 1974, so a long time ago, but actually it still doesn't, doesn't feel that long ago, was ripped apart by a bombing in the town centre by a subgroup of the provisional IRA. So yeah, it does feel does feel very real for me. For our listeners who aren't familiar with the troubles and debate around Northern Ireland, Irish politics and the peace process, we'll put some links in the show notes. Alex, I did want to just pick back up on the deliberative democracy point though, and ask you a little more about how it works. Yes, I want to take a brief minute to talk about how deliberative democracy works and can bring people into the process. So in essence, you recruit a representative sample of the population and, and ask them to look at an issue. It can be it can be over a day, it can be over a few days, um, and they can be different sizes. So for example, citizens' juries involve bringing in expert witnesses or independent expert witnesses, and they might last two to three days as a normal or traditional jury might. And where citizens' assemblies, for example, might last half or, or a full day. But basically, you bring people in who might have very limited knowledge on a, on a topic and through written materials, through presentations, through hearing from others, they discuss and deliberate an issue and then form an opinion or form a judgment at the end. And when it's done really well, the outputs from those sessions inform an actual policy decision. Alex, that's really helpful. Thank you. And I just... One thing I've noticed, that there's a bit of a tendency for people looking at tackling polarisation to reach for this, for an easy solution to everything. And Laura, I know that you've been looking into this. Do you think that's fair? I think it's a fair critique. It's also something that the losing side will often want the winning side to engage in, you know, sometimes just to tell them that they're wrong. It seems you can still get left with a big separation between people taking part in the exercise and those who aren't. You know, Ireland actually had nine deliberative exercises running at the same time as the abortion and gay marriage ones, and they were the only two that have led to concrete change. Yeah, and there's a great article on that and a bit more on deliberative democracy that we'll put in the show notes. If Peter has inspired you to think of a time you changed your mind and why, at the end of this series, we'll be doing a special listeners edition of the show. Email alison at depolarizationproject.com and tell us about what you've changed your mind on. And the best response will get a copy of Peter's book, Democracy for Sale, Wizzed Out in the Post. That's all from us today. Don't forget, we've got a full back catalogue of fascinating interviews with leaders. You can find them all by searching Change My Mind in your podcast app. We'll be back next week with a new episode featuring one of the UK's most senior and established political columnists, Danny Finkelstein, who writes for The Times and is also a politician in the House of Lords. Thank you to Open Democracy for their support of the show, to Caroline Crampton for editing, and to Kevin MacLeod, whose dreams become real, is our theme music. <laughs>